0: This morning, we're going to enter into and begin to take a look at and work our way through the Apostle John's carefully crafted narrative in his gospel. So, if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles to John's gospel, we will be continuing where we left off a month ago in chapter 1, starting at verse 19. And as I said this morning, we're actually going to start working our way through John's narrative, his gospel narrative, in which he gives his readers his firsthand accounts of the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. John's gospel narrative officially begins in verse 19 of chapter 1. The first 18 verses, which we previously covered, are the prologue. And that's the opening section in which John set the stage for his gospel narrative. And having read the prologue and carefully worked our way through it, and consider what John wanted to establish up front for his readers, we are now going to turn the page, so to speak, and begin to read the story. That is the historical account of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I don't want you to forget that this is intended to be a narrative picture, the Gospel of John, you receive it, it is a single book, and you open it up, and there is the prologue, this introductory section. We've just finished that, and now we're entering into chapter 1, so to speak, of the actual story that he has written, which is none less than the historical eyewitness accounts of the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Apostle John begins with the testimony of John the Baptist, which runs from verse 19 to verse 34, and that's our text this morning. The Apostle John already stated in his prologue that John the Baptist was a man sent by God to testify about the arrival of the Christ, the Son of God, the true light, who had come into the world. He then begins his narrative by dropping us right into the middle of John the Baptist's ministry, not the beginning of it, right in the middle of it, particularly at the point when an official delegation comes to him from Jerusalem on behalf of the nation's religious leaders and authorities to inquire who he truly was. Verse 19, we read, and this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? The expression, the Jews, is not utilized a lot in the other gospels, but the apostle John uses it a lot in his, 71 times to be exact. There are a handful of occurrences where John uses the expression in a neutral sense, but it is predominantly used by him to refer to the Jewish people who are opposed to Christ, opposed to the purposes of God. It's used in a negative sense. Most often, the Apostle John uses this phrase, the Jews, to refer specifically to the religious leaders and authorities in Israel who opposed Christ, and they are the ones who in turn worked to turn the Jewish people against Christ. Only a small number of Jews believed in Jesus' name and received him. So again, when we we speak of the Jews rejecting their Messiah, Israel rejecting their Messiah, it's the vast majority of them. But nonetheless, there were those who did. That is, the true disciples who became the apostles, There was the initial group of disciples who truly received him, but the vast majority of the Jews rejected Jesus. And that is why John stated in his prologue that when Christ came to that which was his own, that is to Israel, to the promised land where he would set up his kingdom and inherit dominion over the earth, when he came to to that which was his own, John said in his prologue that his own people did not receive him. In John's gospel narrative, the Jews collectively then are the main antagonist. They're the main antagonist. They are the primary adversaries of the protagonist, Jesus Christ. So the expression the Jews in John's gospel generally refers to those who are opposed to Christ and God's work in and through him. And most often, and more specifically, it refers to the religious leaders and authorities in Israel, as is the case here in verse 19. So keep that in mind when we work our way through John's gospel. And what do we read? An official delegation of priests and Levites were sent from the religious establishment in Jerusalem to find out who John the Baptist truly was. The priests were those who were authorized to officiate the religious ceremonies at the temple. And the Levites were those who assisted the priests in the ceremonial services and also served as the temple police. In this case, they were likely serving as the priests' security detail. Now, before we continue in this passage, I want, to, I want to bring in some of the details that we learned from the other Gospels regarding what had already taken place before this particular occasion so that we have some more context to better understand John the Baptist's interaction with this delegation and the testimony that he gives. So, a little context, a little, little background to situate us in this account. John the Baptist was the first true prophet of God the people of Israel had seen in over 400 years. And he had been preaching in the wilderness of Judea all along the Jordan River. And he was calling the people of Israel to repent because God's kingdom was at hand. That was his message. Jews Jews from all over, were going out to him and being baptized by him and confessing their sins. The people were wondering if John was, in fact, the Christ, their long-awaited Messiah. And many of the Pharisees and Sadducees even, so these religious leaders of the people, many of them who made up the religious establishment in Israel, they went out to see this prophet for themselves not to be baptized though but to observe assess however when john saw them here's what he said to them we read this in matthew's gospel you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. He's speaking to the crowds. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. He baptizes with the Spirit, and he also baptizes with fire and judgment. There will be a distinction made among the people. Well, that certainly left an impression with the Pharisees and Sadducees. Brood of vipers? It is likely that exchanges like this one are what prompted the Pharisees and Sadducees to relay their concerns to the authorities in Jerusalem and eventually persuade them to send an official de- delegation to investigate what John said challenged their worldview. Irked them a little bit too, I'd, I'd imagine. I mean, they believed that God's wrath would ultimately and definitively be poured out only on the Gentiles, those filthy, pig-eaten Gentiles. And that they themselves, they believed, would be entirely secure as members of God's chosen nation. And yet, John warned them that God's judgment would fall upon them if they did not repent. Also, they as the nation's religious leaders, they did not think that they personally were in need of repentance. Yet John spoke to them as if they were sinners like the rest of the people. And they were. They were. On top of this, though, What John was doing, baptizing Jews, baptizing Israelites, that was quite controversial in their eyes. It was offensive. One commentator explains it this way baptism was not a new practice in Judaism, it was the regular rite in the admission of converts from other religions. When such a conversion took place, the males of the family were circumcised and all of both sexes were baptized. This was seen as the ceremonial removal of all the pollutions contracted in the Gentile world. The novelty in John's case and the sting in his practice was that he applied to Jews the ceremony that was held to be Appropriate in the case of Gentiles coming newly into the faith. John's ministry is making a distinction among the people. He didn't appear in Jerusalem. He appeared out in the wilderness. They need to come out to him and repent and be baptized. The Jews, who rightly believed that John was a true prophet of God, Well, they submitted to his message and received his baptism of repentance. Those who did not believe, but rather took offense at his ministry, or at the very least determined that it wasn't intended for them. Like he's talking about everybody else, right? We're good. At the very least, that's, that's it at best. Many of them probably took offense. But they refused his baptism. They didn't believe they refused his baptism. The religious leaders were among those who did not believe. Otherwise, they would have been baptized by John. Instead, they sent a delegation from the nation's capital to get some official answers on the record from John. They were, they were the authorities, and in their view, John must have had an authority greater than theirs In order to be doing what he was doing. He must either be, in their minds, he must either be the Christ or some other key figure spoken of in Scripture who was expected to appear to the nation before God restored them and established his everlasting kingdom on the earth. He must be some kind of great biblical figure then to to have the authority to be doing what he's doing. They wanted an official statement from John. So we read in verses 19 and 20, and this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Well, the most important matter of business for the delegation was to see if John claimed to be the Christ. And John stated very clearly that he was not. And since he was not the Christ, they had in mind two other authoritative figures spoken of in Scripture and expected to appear to Israel. They had two other figures in mind. The first they had in mind was Elijah, a prophet whom God raised up over eight centuries prior to that time, during the early days of Israel's divided kingdom. God did mighty works through Elijah and eventually took him directly up to heaven so that he did not experience death. And about 400 years after that event of him being translated to heaven, the prophet Malachi, who was the last prophet God raised up in Israel, prophesied that before God brought his judgment upon the nations of the world, and restored his, the kingdom to Israel, he would send Elijah to them. God's final words through Malachi are as follows. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike, strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And about 450 years after this prophecy, the word of the Lord came to John the Baptist, and he began his prophetic ministry in Israel. So you can see why they might think maybe he is Elijah. Since John said he was not the Christ, the delegation asked him this, if he was Elijah. 21, verse 21, And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. And then we see that they asked, Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Notice that they don't ask if he was a prophet. He was. They asked if he was the prophet. This was the only other authoritative figure they could think of who was expected to appear to Israel before the day of the Lord came. The prophecy concerning him was spoken by Moses during the final months of his life and ministry to the people of Israel and then recorded by him in the book of Deuteronomy. Moses said to the people in Deuteronomy 18 verse 15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Now, God did raise up other prophets in the history of Israel. There, was, there were many prophets who administered, who were sent by God since the time of Moses. But given the greatness of Moses' position as a prophet and ruler over the people of Israel, and as their mediator before God, and given the closeness of his personal fellowship with God, and given the magnitude of the signs and wonders God performed through him... The Jews believe that this prophet, like Moses, had yet to come, since none of the prophets in Israel's history completely fit this description. Some even believe that the Christ and this prophet were the same person. And the Apostle Peter later affirms this understanding in the book of Acts. But in the delegation's mind, this is another figure that they want to ask if John the Baptist is this prophet. And they ask him, if he's this prophet, he says no. And at this point, they have no other figures in mind. They presented what they suspected he might affirm, and they were planning to go from there, but he denied all of it. They were wrong. And then we read in verses 22 and 23. So they said to him, well, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John here quoted Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 in our Bibles. He quoted from the prophet Isaiah, and thus identified himself as essentially the forerunner of the Messiah, the herald who would call upon the people of Israel to prepare the way for the coming of God's anointed one, the Christ. And how were they to do that? How were they to respond to that, prepare the way of the Lord? Well, John's message was simple, and we've already talked about it. He said what? How do you prepare the way? You repent. And you bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The imagery in Isaiah's prophecy is that of uh, of a straight and smooth path being made in the wilderness for a king to travel on when he makes his visitation. In order to achieve this, the ground would clearly need to be leveled out and all the barriers and obstructions would need to be removed. And John had essentially been calling upon the Israelites to do this with their hearts in order that they would be spiritually ready for the Christ's coming, for his appearing, for his visitation. He is the righteous one. They were to prepare themselves to repent that they might be ready. The Apostle John makes the comment in verse 24, the Apostle John, who's writing this, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. He reveals here that it was, the Pharisees who were behind the sending of this delegation. They were a religious party who emphasized the, the strict study of and adherence to both the law of Moses and to the religious traditions of their elders. They were law keepers. They loved rules and regulations so much, they had so much extra added on to the actual law of Moses to keep. Very religious, very strict law keepers, rule keepers. They were the ones who controlled the teaching in many of the synagogues throughout the country. They were very influential. However, another religious party, the more liberal religious party, the Sadducees, they were the ones who were in charge in Jerusalem, particularly with regard to the temple. While John the Baptist had rebuked both Pharisees and Sadducees alike, the Pharisees were apparently the ones who came up with the plan to send this delegation from Jerusalem to confront John with a particular line of questioning. And the Sadducees agreed to carry it out. And what we see in verse 25 is the real matter they wanted to address. Because after all, John gave them an answer. They had some things cleared up. Okay, it's not the Christ. He said, No, he's not Elijah, he's not the prophet. He said he is this voice crying in the wilderness as uh, prophesied in Isaiah. They had an answer. They didn't say, thank you very much. We will go tell them now. They continued. And it really gets to the heart of the matter what they're really getting at. Verse 25, they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? Why are you baptizing? In other words, again, not genuine curiosity. We'd like to know. We see that you're a holy man of God. No, they're thinking, basically what they're saying here is, what gives you the authority to be baptizing Jews? Only the Christ or Elijah or the prophet would have this level of of authority, and you're not them. Who do you think you are? We then read in verses 26 and 27, John answered them. When they say, why are you baptizing if you're not these people, these figures? John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. What John did here was he reminded his inquirers that the baptism he administered was with water, and thus was only symbolic. However, it pointed to the work of the one who is coming after him, whom he said would baptize people with the Holy Spirit. This is what John had been preaching to the people. Notice that John did not say, well, I, I baptize with water because, and then go on to explain Rather, he simply went on to say, but among you stands one you do not know. He didn't entertain this delegation's follow-up question. Not going to play that game. His previous answer was sufficient, was it not? It was sufficient. So he instead shifts the focus to the one he had been preparing the way for. John was basically saying to them, You may be curious about my level of authority and the nature of my ministry. But let me tell you, I am nothing compared to the one who comes after me. John said what? He said he was unworthy to untie the strap of his sandal. This was a task that only a slave in that society could be expected perform. It was seen as so low and degrading that only a slave could be expected to do that. And John said that the one of whom he spoke was so much greater than him that he was not even worthy to perform the lowest of tasks for him. John was claiming nothing for himself, He was simply continuing the mission he had been given to prepare the way for someone else. So it wasn't about him. He shifts the focus to the one he came to prepare the way for, someone who is far, far greater than him. And by this point, the delegation was done with their questions. And then the apostle John makes this note in verse 29. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. And just to clear up any potential confusion, this is not to be confused with the town of Bethany that was just outside Jerusalem. This was Bethany across the Jordan, that is, on the east side of the Jordan River. And it's very likely that John was referring to Batanea, which is a region or was a region on the east side of the Jordan River up near the Sea of Galilee, a little further north, away from Jerusalem. And this tells us where along the Jordan John the Baptist was ministering during this time. He's actually close to the Sea of Galilee. And the Apostle John then tells us what took place the very next day. The very next day. What happened? Verse 29. The next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. And this is the exact same statement uh, from John that was included in the prologue in verse 15. We had seen this before, that particular statement. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. It was John's proclamation that the one he was preparing the way for pre-existed and was thus divine. He is God the Son, and he points to Jesus and says, that is him. And in verse 31, he continues, I myself did not know him. But for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. John knew that his administering of water baptism for the people of Israel would be the occasion that would draw the Messiah out from obscurity so that he would finally be manifested to the nation. Again, Jesus was born some 30 years before this. He was in obscurity. The Messiah was in the world. The Christ was in the world. But he had yet to be manifested. John's ministry was the occasion by which he would be manifested to the people. Now, John says in verse 31 that he did not know him. He did not mean that he did not know Jesus. They were relatives, after all. It's actually a relative of his. Rather, what John meant was that he did not know that Jesus was the Christ. The life-giving word who had come into the world. He didn't know. And in verses 32 to 34, we learn how John came to know for certain that Jesus was the Christ. He said, "John, the Apostle John writes, And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. When did John witness this? He witnessed the sign right after God the Son being affirmed by God the Father and anointed by God the Holy Spirit. And therefore, John the Baptist, having seen this, he could emphatically state his testimony that is recorded in verse 34. What does he say? And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now, there's something important for us to take into consideration with regard to the timing of all of this. It was right after Jesus was baptized that John witnessed the Holy Spirit descend and remain upon him, thus confirming that he was the Christ. However, here's the very next thing that happened after Jesus' baptism and after this revelation, this sign, this event. We read in Luke's gospel, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil what this means and again in mark's gospel he says he immediately went into the wilderness so what this means is that right after John saw the holy spirit descend upon Jesus Jesus then immediately went into the wilderness in isolation for 40 days over a month John then had all this time to reflect upon the significance of what he had seen, what he had witnessed. Back in verse 26, we see that he said to the delegation, what? Among you stands one you do not know. And this is because he had already at that point been manifested to John. He's no longer saying, there's one coming after me, in a sense that he has not been revealed yet. Now he says, there's one among you the one who stands among you, you do not know. He had been revealed to John at that point. We then read in verse 29 that the very next day, John once again saw Jesus. So after he says that to the delegation, the very next day, he sees Jesus approaching. And it's very likely that Jesus was coming toward John straight from his time of testing in the wilderness, which meant 40 days had passed since John witnessed the divine verification that Jesus was the Christ. And when he saw him approaching finally, knowing now who he is, he sees him for the first time after 40 days. And what is the first thing he says? Behold, what does he say? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 40 days of reflection. Forty days of waiting in anticipation, having uh, having learned and identified who the Christ is. This is the first thing John says when he sees him. Now the expression, the Lamb of God, appears to have been coined by John the Baptist. It does not occur anywhere in the Old Testament, that expression. And there's no evidence of it ever being used among the Jews, let alone as a title for the Messiah. But that's what John the Baptist did. So what did he mean by it? What did he mean by it? What was he alluding to and or implying when he called Jesus the Lamb of God? And here's what I believe he had in mind. And again, I think we're used to hearing some basic truths regarding what a lamb would signify. And we think sacrificial lamb, right? But what, what exactly, what specifically is John alluding to here and implying? Well, I think it, would, it is probably a combination of two things. First, certainly it is a reference to the Passover sacrifice, which, by the way, was not always a lamb. The Passover was not always a lamb. According to God's stipulations in Exodus 12, the institution of the Passover, the sacrifice had to be, first of all, a small livestock beast. There's a particular Hebrew word that means a small livestock beast. It's it's not a lamb, but a small livestock beast, and of this kind, it had to be from either the sheep or from the goats. So it could be from the sheep or the goats. And... The final stipulation that was, was that it had to be a one-year-old, unblemished male. So, a lamb is a young sheep. And that, instead of a young goat, is the metaphor that John the Baptist chose to apply to Jesus. The Lamb of God. Now, lambs were also used in other kinds of sacrifices that God commanded of Israel. So we think, well, was he also referring to these ones or maybe these? The morning and evening sacrifice, perhaps? But we have additional information or evidence in this gospel. The Apostle John connects it to the Passover sacrifice as well later in his gospel because he explains later that the timing of Jesus' crucifixion He made a point to explain that the timing of Christ's crucifixion coincided with the sacrifice of the Passover. So he's making that connection. And he also made the point that not one of Jesus' bones was broken when he was crucified, which was also one of God's commands concerning the Passover sacrifice. So John writing his gospel makes that connection. So when John the Baptist said Lamb of God, certainly we can... Consider that he that's what he intended, the Passover sacrifice. But there's one other thing that it seems that he also was referring to. Because John did not just refer to Jesus simply as the lamb. Again, the Passover sacrifice was not called the lamb of God. Everybody had to get a lamb and perform the ritual to offer the sacrifice. But John called him God's lamb. He didn't just say a lamb metaphorically he said the lamb of god he is god's lamb who what who takes away sin and because he says that i would say the expression he used was also intended as a reference to the servant of the lord as prophesied in isaiah and again i would want to work through a lot of show you a lot of these passages but for the sake of time i'll kind of summarize what is found in isaiah Concerning the servant of the Lord. We already know that John the Baptist, when he's given an answer about his identity and his role, he quoted what? From the prophet Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 3, to explain to the delegation what his own role was. And then in verses 32 to 33, we saw that he identified Jesus as the one on whom the Spirit remains, right? He said, He is the one on whom the Spirit remains. This is connected to Jesus, is connecting. Jesus to Isaiah's prophecies concerning the servants and in Isaiah he prophesies in Isaiah 42 there's a prophecy behold my servant this is God speaking of a, a particular his chosen servant my servant with whom or whom I uphold my chosen one in whom my soul delights I have put my spirit upon him so in saying that the spirit remained upon Jesus connects him with this figure the servant of the Lord in Isaiah. This servant spoken of in Isaiah is none other than the promised Messiah. When we read the other prophecies concerning him, he is a descendant of David. So he is the promised Messiah. Isaiah prophesied that he would not only bring salvation to Israel, but to the rest of the nations as well. In Isaiah 49, he says that he would bring salvation to the end of the earth. And most importantly... In Isaiah 53, it is revealed that this salvation will be made possible by this servant's sacrificial death to make atonement for the sins of his people. In this prophecy, in Isaiah 53, the servant is likened to a lamb that is led to the slaughter. He's likened to a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And in this prophecy it is said that he will make many to be accounted righteous by bearing their iniquities and making an offering for their guilt before God through the sacrifice of himself. John the Baptist then you can see what he's saying when he said that Jesus is the lamb of God who what? He takes away the sin of the world. Again, the Passover sacrifice, when God saw the blood of the sacrifice, the idea is that his judgment, his wrath passed over, passed over the household. But it doesn't talk about the taking away of sin. And yet this prophecy in Isaiah says exactly that. How, if God's judgment, if his wrath passes over and you're spared, what is done with your sin? How is your sin taken away? And the prophecy in Isaiah says how it's taken away. The servant comes and offers himself as our substitute. And he bears our sin in himself and endures the wrath of God in our place so that our guilt may be completely removed because it was punished in him. And we are accounted as righteous. Sin is taken away. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, first came into the world to accomplish the most important work then. Apart from which no man would be saved, but all would be condemned to eternal hell with the devil and his angels, Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for the sins of his people. That is, those whom God chose to save before the foundation of the world, to be a part of a redeemed and glorified humanity who would dwell with him in righteousness in his everlasting kingdom, in a renewed creation. And the good and glorious news is that the salvation of God has come through Christ, not just to the Jews. He's the Messiah of Israel. He's the Christ of Israel. But John says much more about him. The implications are far greater. Salvation of God has not come just to the Jews but also to the Gentiles as well. That is, to all the other nations of the earth. If you remember the promise God spoke to Abraham, in you, in your seed, I will bless all the families of the earth. The blessing I bestow upon you will be dispensed to all the families, all the nations of the earth. And ultimately, he was talking about the blessing that would come through the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ, the descendant of David, who descends from Abraham. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin, not just of Israel, but of the world. Of the world. And again, not every individual, but people from every nation, not just Israel. All who would receive him, right? As John wrote in his prologue. And... As the Apostle John also wrote in the book of Revelation, which he also penned, according to what the risen and glorified Christ revealed to him, by Christ's blood, he ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Jesus is mighty to save, and he is the only way to be reconciled to God and to be saved from his righteous judgment and wrath. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, like the self-righteous religious leaders of John's day. We read of them. They thought highly of themselves. And what happened? They did not know the very one who had come to bring salvation. They hardened their hearts. They refused salvation. They refused to receive him. That's a warning to us to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought. God opposes the proud. His salvation does not come to the proud. It comes to the humble. You are a sinner in desperate need of God's grace and salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. Every one of you. If you believe, as we read in the prologue, if you believe in Jesus' name and receive him as he truly is, and certainly you've been presented with the truth concerning who he truly is, Scripture says he will graciously forgive your sins and give you the right to become a child of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that now as we enter into our observance of communion, that you would help us to meditate on, reflect upon the greatness of your salvation that you have made available to us, Through your righteous, sinless, glorious Son, the Christ, the true light, the life-giving Word, who is indeed the only way to salvation, the only way to you, the only way to receive forgiveness of sins, to have our sin taken away and to be counted as righteous before you. Lord Jesus, we lift up your name this morning. We exalt you, we glorify you. Help us to keep a right perspective on our former desperate condition and our continuing desperate need for your grace. So in your name we pray. Amen.